Alrighty, welcome to Kettle and Fish. This is usually the show after the show to talk after the talk. The 20-minute comedy money shot after the two hours of political foreplay on Sundays. But today we're going to do something just a little bit different. Um, Dwayne is here. I, of course, am Nick the Saucy One Cat Source. Our beautiful producer, D is here. And Fern is here. So, you guys ready yeah. to get fish or what? Hello. Sure, sure, sure. Very good. Hey, D gets called uh, beautiful, Fern gets called lovely, and I get Dwayne is here. Right. Uh, how about this? Uh, how about this? Hero of the day, Dwayne. Because you talked somebody <laughs> off the uh, yeah, edge don't, don't, today. Yeah, don't, 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 yeah, don't bring that one part up. But we'll, yeah, okay. <laughs> so you're a hero today. What's that? I said you're a hero today. Thank so you. The way. The compassion badger. The compassion badger. Okay, bad. anyway. I'm getting bigger kudos because I'm the time the diva of the show. You are. The new um, yeah. word now is diva whenever we want to shut you up. That was so yep. perfect. That's awesome. <laughs> I can't right, Thank you. Here's the deal, guys. Usually we do Kettle of Fish after the Ignorance Equation, kind of a, a wind-down show. And the reason that we do this was actually the whole idea of it came from an interview we did in July with Jamie Farr. Of course, everybody knows Jamie from uh, MASH's Clinger. And if you've seen the Cannonball Run movies, you know him as the Arab in that Funny enough, when I looked him up on IMDb, the name of his character in Cannonball Run is the Arab. That just seems like yeah. lazy writing to me, right? That they didn't give him right. an actual name. It sounds like the crazy Chinese knockoff Star Wars toys are coming out now. A guy bought a whole shipment from China. I think he's going to cash in on his new movie. They're from from the last, or they're from, actually from Revenge of the Sith. Mm-hmm. Or in Clone Wars, and they actually named Luke, young Luke Skywalker Anakin. The title on the packaging was The Girl. <laughs> you want to talk about Lady? That was what they called the character, The Girl, Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I'm sure I think it's simple comedy. I like simple comedy. Sometimes the simplest yeah. thing is just the funniest thing. Yep. So uh, yeah. I think it's genius. I don't want to hear it today, but shit has been crazy the last two weeks. But let's do this interview because. So here's what happened. We did an interview with Jamie Farr in July, and I got some feedback, and it's like, I don't understand what this show is. It's supposed to be a political show, but then you'll do like a quick draw improv episode, or you'll do an interview with Jamie Farr that has nothing to do with politics. And I was like, you know, it's I, I, I have so many interesting people that I want to interview, and I don't want to turn down an opportunity, like the opportunity that came with Jamie Farr. So I was like, I just need to do a little after show. One, if I do just a 20-minute after show, sometimes they run a little bit long. It still won't be as much work as trying to put together an hour to 90-minute interview. And, like, I can put it on a separate archive page, and people will understand, oh, Kettle of Fish, Jamie Farr, that makes sense. So that's what I'm doing today. I wanted to rebroadcast the Jamie Farr um, interview since it is the interview that kind of kicked off Kettle of Fish, the reason we started Kettle of Fish. And I want to rebroadcast. We've never rebroadcast anything before. So what do you well, guys think about that? Didn't we? No, we rebroadcasted something. It wasn't an interview, though. I can't remember what it was. It was a couple of years ago. It was, was, it, was it that Snowden, it was, I thought it was a Snowden Christmas show or something? Yeah, yeah, there show. you go. There you oh, go. yeah. 
But we just played, yeah, that's right. But we just played that whole episode straight out. But you actually did the arduous task of cutting and editing and getting the exact Jamie yeah. Farr video. I like the, the video interview, the hour interview out of the two hours of Ignorance Equation stuff we had going on. Right. And me, Dwayne, and Dee, you know, I've spoken with, and I've, I've spoken with some bands that I grew up listening to, and it's been a big deal. But since I grew up kind of already knowing some famous bands and working in the music industry, it wasn't that huge of a leap. Like being mm-hmm. able to interview William Sanderson from Newhart, who I loved his character growing up. And, and Jay Sweetheart, anyway. Yeah, from Soap, who um, I'm uh. friends with now. William loves the videos that I do on YouTube. I still talk to Jay all the time on Facebook, and we'll have Jay yeah. coming back next year. And William's coming, of course, on the end of the year show. And then to be able to talk to Jamie Farr, who I doubt will ever come back to the show, because I don't think it was a, I don't think it was like great of experience for him as it was for the other guys. Maybe it was mm-hmm. too long or something. But it's just it, it's amazing to me that that these guys that I loved watching growing up, I've actually well, well, a couple things, two things are quick, Mm-hmm. Yeah, don't forget our good friend John Lear, my my Holly, my only Hollywood celebrity that I actually like. And I don't think it was, the case of Jamie was him not enjoying it or liking it. I just think he's that humble and quiet of a person. I think you know, yeah. inside, he truly appreciated the adulations we gave, adulations we gave him. And I think he just, even still, I don't think he really knows how to accept being liked as much as we you know showed him. I think he's just so quiet and. Thank we came up strong, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? I'm sure he, in his heyday too, I'm sure he was used to that, you know. So I mean, I'm sure he's used to that. I don't think he really... When I looked for interviews the past couple years, I couldn't find any. I found one interview with him from like the last five years. Well, from what yeah. I've seen of his other interviews and from us talking to him, I just think he's that humble. Yeah, I do of, too. Of, of where he is and how he got there. And I don't think it yeah. really... I don't think it registers to him. I'm going to try to put words in his mouth, but I don't think it registers him just how important he was to all of our childhoods and young adulthoods watching him on reruns or first first running. I don't think he gets that mm. or believes that people really love him that much from playing pretty much a, a slacker army uh, corporal and then sergeant. I mean, that's what, he was a slacker. Everything he tried to do was get out of the army, and people loved that character. Absolutely. And, I mean, of course, I love John Lear and all the other guests, but I didn't grow up watching John Lear. Like, I never heard of John Lear until 10 Items or Less. Although I did watch him when he was on Jesse, but he had really long hair and glasses, and I didn't realize it was the same person. And he didn't talk. Who he was to look at him until 10 Items or Less, which I did watch that show when it was on the air, like in the first run, and I loved that show. Fern, how do you feel that you've met all these other celebrities, but you missed out on Jamie Farr? Because you came in... Um, you know, I listened to the Jamie Farr interview, and I think it's great that we are rebroadcasting that because it's such an incredible interview. Um, I was, you know, I was really smitten with him during that interview. I thought it was awesome, and you know, I, I've enjoyed talking to everybody that we've talked to. I mean, all the guests have been just absolutely amazing. And you know, even though I wasn't part of that, I came on later. I mean, I'm I still got to experience that, and you know, that's what it's about. I mean. It's just the experience of hearing some of the things that he has to say that's, like, you know, background that you just don't, 
you know, you can't find anywhere else, and you're hearing it directly from him and how he felt. And, you know, you get that, that kind of behind-the-scenes look, and it's 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 an eye-opening experience and really, you know, humanizes, you know, celebrities, and people feel comfortable with that. I mean, that's what I got out of it. I really, you know, it really humanized him for me, and it was just incredible. He's just a great guy. Yeah, and I was able to dig and get some info that I've never heard in another interview or never seen mm-hmm. in any MASH documentaries. Right, right. Yeah, that was, it was just so cool to listen to. And I think if anybody hasn't heard this interview, that this is going to be a cool experience to just sit and listen to him, you know, talk and give his perspective and tell these stories. It's just, it's amazing. It was a great interview. And yeah, I'm not the awesome. dead horse, but to show how humble that you can be a famous celebrity, be on t- in people's homes for 11 years, just on one program, not kind of other stuff, and still be so humble. What a true, true uh Gentlemen, what a true human gentleman. Thank you. Yeah, he is. not what you got now. Mm-hmm. Come on, won't sign an autograph, won't talk. You talk like you're a piece of crap. He truly showed what it was like to be an actor back in those days, and now yeah. today too. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm gonna kick some uh, mash facts here right before the interview, and then we've all got stuff to do. But D, you've been kind of quiet. Jamie yeah. Clark, what's your input? Oh my goodness, he was he was just wonderful. He was really sweet, and it was really cool um, to be able to talk to him and like. What I what really, you know, stood out to me is that, you know, he wrote a book um, on everything that he'd done in his life, but at the same time, it wasn't like a tell-all. It was very, you know, yeah, I worked with this person and I did this and we had this project and whatever, but it wasn't like, oh, so-and-so slept with her, this person, ha ha You know, he was just, he was very genuine and very sweet and I, I just... He yeah, he even said, he like, you know, when he was writing a book... He couldn't really sell a lot of copies because he didn't want to talk dirt about anybody. And he's yeah, like, that's yeah. not me. I'm not going to talk dirt about anybody, so therefore my book won't sell. Right, and I, and I thought that was just so sweet. Yeah, it does. It really, really does. Yeah, and, it, I mean, he still yeah, works, you know. I think that's probably why you haven't really heard much from him because, you know, he's not doing a lot of, like, big screen acting or, you know, small screen stuff. He's He's doing Broadway. You know, he's doing, like, well, plays hey, up in Canada and in Canada. and stuff like that. Huh? Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's doing the theater. Um, and that's just, which I think is fabulous. I love, love, love the theater. Um, but, you know, that's what he loves to do, and that's just what he does. You know, he's not, like, this big, flashy, uh, like, you know, Tom Cruise. Everybody knows who that is. You know, he's big, flashy giant cars and giant houses and things like that. He's just like, you know, I've yeah, done my I life. Could, and well, I truly wish I huh? could sit down. I, I wish I could sit down and have lunch with him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he'd be really yeah. sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Before you yeah. get into the facts part, Nick, I just want to remind our listeners that prior to that episode with Jamie Farr, the original episode, I literally cleaned up the uh, operating room floor with Nick on Bash Trivia. I just want to put that out there for, for everybody. Oh, by the way, speaking of trivia, and I didn't know this until I was um, going through the archives doing some stuff on there, we're going to have Adrian, my friend Adrian Marvel, on trivia again. She's probably been on three or four times, and I like to mix it up. I don't always like to have, like, a comedian or an actor. We just had actress Alexander Lee this past Friday, and it was kind of a mess because of technical issues. But Adrian's going to be on Christmas night, which is a Friday, to do Christmas trivia and believe it or not, the I looked at the archives. We, we mm-hmm. did Marvel's trivia with her 
last year, Friday. It was Friday the 20th. We did. It was marvelous Christmas trivia, wasn't it? Yeah. Realize it's our second year in a row me playing um, Adrian and trivia on the air. So now it's becoming kind of a tradition. Nice. This Wednesday, we Clark, singer of Warrior Soul. Some of you guys might remember that middle band on musical osmosis. The following Wednesday, we have got um, the Dead Milkman. Joe from the Dead Milkman coming on. Friday, like I said, is Adrian. And an end of the year show, end of the year show, end of the year show. Lots of announcements. Um, Sheila Shondell will be on to talk about you guys as you be. And Sheila's new vodka. Yeah, thirty will be awesome. Mm-hmm. All my kids are moving on. Um, Badger's going to be doing the Badger's Den and doing his own podcast. Fern's going to yeah, be sleeping at her. So oh, that'll man, be good. I got to put up my PC because I, I don't think Blog Talk is really compatible with the Mac, and I'm having issues even sharing on Facebook. So just give me to probably the first airing of that will be after the first year once I get the computer up and get some room made after Christmas. All that. I'm just making the announcements, but also we're going to have William Sanderson from True Blood, Deadwood, and of course Newhart. He played Larry with his brother Daryl and his other brother Daryl. And our most favorite guest all the time, complete sweetheart and all around wonderful human being, John Lear. Yay! Yay! Well, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Oh, to everybody. Fine. It's going to be awesome. Yep. All, be all awesome. I heard was John Lear. All I heard was John Lear. I, I, I didn't catch anybody <laughs> else. No offense to anybody else, but all I heard was John Lear. We know. Okay. It's okay. Presidential. I he knows I have a man crush on him. You absolutely do, dude. You are fawning over him right now. Yeah. <laughs> Let me get this last announcement Announcement out. Next Sunday on Kettle of Fish, presidential hopeful. He promises a pony to every American and to round people up and stick them in dental re-education camps. Mr. Vermin Supreme. Who's excited about this interview? I oh, am. Yeah. I'm going to ask him oh, if I can trade my pony in. For a mule because mules are actually a lot easier to keep. They don't get hoof problems. They're easier to feed. Someone asked, and they're cheaper too than a pony. Someone asked, he's the kind of person who negotiates or compromises. He'll be perfect for Washington. Yes. Yeah, right. it's gonna be crazy. Well, yeah. if Trump falters, if, if, if this is my, I'm giving my word. If Trump falters, which I doubt it, but if he does, I will 100% give my vote to Vermin. And I will if mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders doesn't run. Vermin has my Wow. Mind. Let's kick some mash facts because um, I got to kick in this interview so we don't go over. Um, of course, Mash ran 11 years. It was about the Korean War. The actual Korean War only lasts three. The series finale is the high, still the highest rated American show of all time. 106 million viewers. And back then, there was less than 300 million people. So that was over a third of people watched that, and that's not in reruns or on DVD. That's the night it aired. One out of three people, more than one out of three people, were sitting in front of the TV set. That is mind blowing, right? Didn't happen. Amazing movie though. It deserves every view it got. It was probably one of my favorite all-time movies. It was a made-for-TV movie, not a cinema movie. Okay, we know from the interview that Jamie Farr was actually in the Korean War. Let me kick a trivia question. Who was the one other actor that was actually in the Korean War that was on the MASH TV show? Badger. Go ahead. Harry Morgan? Nope. Anybody else want to take a guess? I can't answer because this was a question I wrote for the show. 
<laughs> I'm disqualified. <laughs> I have no idea. I couldn't even like. I couldn't even actually, take a guess. Alan Olda, Alan Olda, and Jamie Farr, the only two cast members that actually served in the Korean War. Yep. Wow. Next, Twilight Zone fact. Are you guys ready? Yep. Yep. McLean. Heck yes. Who played Henry McCoy, Henry Blake, sorry, I'm thinking of Beast from X-Men. McLean Stevenson, who played Colonel Blake on the TV show, he died of a heart attack February 15, 1996. The next day, Roger Bowen, who played Colonel Blake in the movie, died of a heart attack. How freaky is that? Right? Uh, That's a weird, wow. Tells me, never play a, tells me to never play a colonel in a movie. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like how um, Jefferson and Adams died within minutes of each other on the, what was it, the centennial or bicentennial? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Fourth, they both died on the 4th of yep. July, like 50 years after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Yep. Yeah, yep. And, and they were still uh, trying to poke each other with their, at least I outlived him. Meanwhile, you didn't. One died. He died actually before Jefferson did. And yeah, it was kind of weird how they were poking each other. Like, I live longer, I live longer. <laughs> they were both wrong. Well, I don't know if Dee was trying to chime in, but I have nothing from Dee. So I don't know if your mic's off. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, no. It, I was saying, I was trying to remember which one died first because that one was like, and the other one survives. And then, like, not even maybe 10, 15 minutes later, probably, he was gone. Not so easy to remember to turn the mic back on when you're doing something, is it? I know, right? Well, I'm trying really hard not to get feedback and stuff like that, and you guys all sound better when my mic is off, so, yeah, it's kind of weird. We'll we'll get the things worked out, and it'll be yeah, all good. Yeah, we've got a new setup here. No more Bluetooth. We're actually both using mics. I got it. Dee was nice enough to get me a whole new setup for Christmas, and she's got my old yeah. hand-me-down mic equipment, so no more Bluetooth. Okay, Gary, you're a re-gifter. You're a re-gifter. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Miami You're not even a true re-gifter. He's a used re-gifter. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. the, I'm sure you knew this, but um, Gary Berghoff's left hand is slightly deformed. So in all yeah. the episodes, he was always trying to hide his hand. Uh, MASH, I don't know if you knew this, Dwayne. MASH was the first network series to use the phrase son of a bitch. I did not know oh. So they broke ground there. Um, Klinger was only supposed to appear in one episode. However, he was so yep. popular, they made him a regular. And finally, on Sesame Best Street... they made. Yep, I can agree. We can agree on something, Badger. And on Sesame <laughs> Street, Big Bird's teddy bear was named Radar to pay homage to oh. Radar. Aww. Yep, I remember that. that. Do you? Oh, I yeah, I did. Yeah, well, and and it was always like my favorite characters ever on everything had teddy bears. So like I adore Radar um, and uh, Big Bird, of course. Huh? Do you feel bad when you eat teddy grams? No. Um, and, and like <laughs> like they all have teddy bears. So my favorite people always have teddy bears. Ernie, Ernie has a teddy bear. Um, yeah, my favorite people always have teddy bears, so I always, I, I still, as an adult, I have teddy bears. I love teddy bears. All right, I got these Not last like a button. And, and this is something I hate. So, hold on. Hold on. 
Are, are you with me? Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. I can. <laughs> yeah, hear you. we're cool. We're good. Hawkeye in early episodes mentioned a sister that he had, and she even got a, a sweater in the mail from his sister in one episode. But then in another episode, he later said he was an only child and his mother died as a boy. And then there was Ooh. another one where the character Sidman, Sidney Friedman was originally called Milton Friedman, and then they just changed it along the series. And there was about 20 of these where the plots had changed or the origins have changed and stuff like that. And they do this without any kind of explanation. Or maybe they'll change a, an actor for the same character midseason like they did with Roseanne, and you're not supposed to notice. This drives me crazy. Does that stuff drive you crazy? When they just alter the plot or alter the origins and then just act like it never happened. Oh, oh, Mary with uh, Children did that with that kid seven. They brought him yeah. in when Peggy's cousins dropped him off. Then for like one season, he's there. Then they don't even mention him for like another season. No mention of him. Hey, but it was funny, though, how they showed it. Bud goes in the ground with a milk carton, and on the back, it has a picture of that kid seven and says missing. So, I mean, at least they, they explained a little bit. But, yeah. no, I hated that. Thing. Oh, I hated that. It's it depends I think for me like what show and what character it is. There's some where I really don't give a rat's ass, but then like let me uh, Roseanne they switched out. I want to tell huh? Dwayne, you know why they did that with Seven, right? Dwayne? No, I, I actually I I should because I am a married with children fanatic, but I don't. Kristen Siegel was pregnant and she lost her baby, and after she right, lost right, her baby, been right. there. Um, being pregnant or giving birth on a show fictionally since she had really lost her baby. So they brought Seven in because they had all the scripts written that were oriented around a young kid. And they brought Seven in, and then I guess he didn't work, and they just kind of wrote him off and never talked about him again. See, I, I knew about the pregnancy and her having a miscarriage, but I didn't know they brought him in for that because I asked, honestly, I could watch seasons 1 through 11. In fact, my 7-year-old daughter loves the show. We watch it at least once a month. But I always skip the ones of seven because I just cannot stand him. So that's, I didn't realize that. Now, okay, Fern, huh. I'll let you and Dee have last words. When it comes to TV shows that you're really into, kind of switching characters? Uh, you know, I don't really know that I noticed that, that a whole lot. I guess maybe I'm not as observant as the, of the unexplained things that I as I am of, you know, TV shows that I've watched long term. And I'm like, oh, there it is. There, like NCIS. You know, I'll watch that, and they'll kick something back to, like, four seasons ago and explain it, and it's like, oh, there it is. Okay, wow, they're they're really reaching back to grab that. But I don't know that I really noticed some of the unexplained stuff. Maybe I'm just not that observant. It's normally TV is background music for me. It's uh, I'm on and off my tablet or my phone while I'm watching TV because I can't sit still for five minutes. So maybe I'm just not seeing it, but I mean, I, I mean, the writing has to be good, even if there's some unexplained stuff in there or some stuff that just kind of doesn't make sense. I guess the hope is that it will eventually be cleared up, but I, I don't think I really notice. And yeah, frankly, as long as the writing's good and everything else, then I don't. It doesn't really bother me at all. All right, fair enough. Yeah. Hey, you have the last word today, and then we'll kick into oh, the wow. fish segment. Uh, it it really it really depends on the character in the show. Um, like on Roseanne, it didn't really bother me when they switched out the oldest sister. Like I it didn't even didn't even register that it was a different actress. Um, 
And there's some soap opera that I used to watch with my grandma that they switched out one of the actors or the actress and it like that. It was kind of a big deal when I was a kid. Um, but it, I, I don't know, like I never really noticed, but there, there's some like that if they swapped out characters or swapped out, you know, people, it just, it would not be, it wouldn't be the same. It just wouldn't like, for example, um, big bang theory, when Stuart's mother died, they can't replace her. They, it doesn't matter that we've never seen her. We know her voice. Um, for them to put somebody else there, it just would, wouldn't work. But, you know, uh, King of the Hill, that's another good one. When Brittany Murphy died, you you can't swap that out. It's Brittany Murphy or no one. Um, All right, well, you're speaking so, up, so we're going to play the interview now. Okay, cool. All right, we're awesome. Not, <laughs> nothing with technical problems anymore on the show. The, yeah. the, more, the more advanced equipment we get, the worse we sound. I know. I go back to the season of my flip phone for interviews. Well, you figure every branch of the ABC government is probably listening into us now. So what do you expect when every every phone line, every cell tower has a a, a bug on it right now listening to us? I think you should do all interviews and all shows from now on in Morse code. Well, right. I think, I think yeah. will enjoy this interview the most out of the NSA and um, CIA and FBI. I think Homeland Security will get it. So maybe, uh, maybe we can do it like in like Navajo, the code talkers did World War II. The Germans never broke that code. Maybe we should use that. Yeah, well, we will only broadcast in, in code, and we'll send out Enigma machines to all our fans. There you go. Uh, yeah, that's it. Hi hey, guys. I let D have her last word. I didn't jump in with one more comment or even Aww. word on, on Except that. Except oh, that. That's like to speak last. <laughs> that, that's my like Christmas present to D. Not not saying something after she finished. Okay. <laughs> Merry Christmas, guys. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We'll be back next Sunday. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Merry Christmas. Yeah. This week on Kettle Fish, TV icon Jamie Foss outside to talk about the MASH 4077. Welcome to our after show. We call Kettle a Fish. The No Politics Master Show. It's time for Kettle a Fish. No debate, hate, or argument allowed on Kettle a Fish. It's like a Willy Wonka psychedelic acid trip. So hooray for Kettle a Fish. It has been said that the national crime rate actually dropped significantly during the airing of the 1950 TV quiz show 21. And why? Because back before tablets, iPhones, Hulu, and laptops, Americans actually felt a deep connection to the shows they watched and an even deeper connection to the stars they allowed into our homes every night. And because their choices were so limited, and you couldn't just TiVo, Redbox, or Netflix the latest episode of Honeymooners, even criminals made sure to take the night off and to watch their favorite programs, which ironically was probably Dragnet or Car 54, Where Are You? Now, for any millennials out there who might be listening, this may be a hard concept for you to grasp. After all, how special can your favorite television shows be when you don't have to make time for your favorite programs? Rather, the onus is on your favorite programs to find a platform to make time for you. It's kind of like the difference between a serious relationship and a booty call. Sure, the 24 minutes of sex feels good, but is this a person you really want sticking around to share an ego with you in the morning? 
So alas, TV has become that drunken digital one-night stand used to stimulate us but for a brief moment and then quickly be disregarded as we move on to the next shiny, meaningless distraction that makes no real connection with the viewer and invokes no real thought beyond, hey, the iPhone 5 comes in purple now. Awesome. Now, maybe I sound like a crotchety old man in my longing for a bygone era of true human interaction where where it whether, excuse me, it be a simple phone call from a faraway relative just to say hi, a letter from a dear old friend, or me and my dad sitting in his den every Monday night watching the latest episode of MASH and sharing a laugh together. Maybe our connection to these fictional characters that in many way in many ways we the viewer consider to be part of our family is why after 30-plus years, MASH holds the record for the highest-viewed TV show finale in all of television history, a record that stands at over 105 million viewers, which in 1983 was more than a third of our country. Now I know what you're going to say. What about The Walking Dead and Game of Thrones? They have a huge, almost rabid following of dedicated and loyal fans. True, my Twitter-fied little emo friends, but think about this for a moment. Maxwell Klinger, all things considered, was an average Joe from Toledo who could just have easily been one of your uncles, and he lived within the fictional framework of a real-world backdrop we could all relate to. Can you say the same about Jon Snow and the zombie apocalypse? Or is the only way we can connect with any form of media now, whether it be news, music, movies, or TV, is if the content is so explosive, so hyperbolic, so over-the-top, and with more outrageous plot, plot turns than a Randy Quaid viral video rant about transsexual Confederate flag-wearing genetically enhanced unicorns who roam the secret FEMA tunnels of South Texas, that now stories about average people and not-so-average situations are just too average for us, the average viewer, to pay attention to. Or maybe it goes deeper than that. Maybe it goes deeper than pushing the envelope and constantly trying to reinvent the wheel. Maybe it's a sad commentary on how we the people interact and engage with each other. Maybe in a world of the ever-shrinking attention span, a country where ADD and OCD is more common than the art of conversation, it won't be long before we de-evolve into a race of mindless video drones who just fart and grunt at each other while swiping left on Tinder. Or maybe, most importantly, we are... Um, uh, someone just posted an adorable picture of a cat sleeping in a sock drawer on my wall. Damn it, what was I talking about? All righty, <laughs> that is my say. Let's get Mr. Farr in here. Jamie Farr! Yes, am I speaking to Nick? You are absolutely speaking to Nick, sir. Thank you so hey, much so for calling Nick, that. indeed, that's on the line. Who was the other gentleman that you were talking to? This is Dwayne. Oh, my God, I got He'll be coming back here in a minute once we get to the MASH portion of the interview. He's our co-host. But oh, I okay. That's okay. His name is Al, you said? Dwayne. Or Dwayne. Yep, but he's in queue right now. He's in the waiting room until we get to the first part of the interview. Okay. So, want to thank you so much for calling in. Quick story, because I've got another reason to thank you. Um, I, we've been traveling most of June and the first part of July, and I had to go up to New York to do this live podcast for the Nerdist Network. And, you know, we're out here in Tennessee, so I've, I've done oh, college Oh, I did shows. not know that. No, I, I was uh, wondering where you were broadcasting from. Oh, yeah. We're up here. Oh, are you in the Nashville, Memphis area? Knoxville. Knoxville, other side. Mm-hmm. 
We're out here in Knoxville, and um, this is the first time I've ever done anything live like this, a live interview, and I didn't feel like it went too well. I felt like, you know, you can tell when you're not really connecting with the audience, the jokes are kind of falling flat, and we were <laughs> staying with friends in Baltimore at the time, so it's about a two-hour drive from New York back to Baltimore. My friends are driving, music's on, I'm sitting in the back seat, kind of brooding, feeling a little bit melancholy, and on the road, I had been reading your book, and I started thinking about the things that you've gone through, the you know, with the Pepsi commercial and your interactions with Joey Bishop, game shows that you've tried to launch, and the hurdles that you've overcome. And I got to tell you, it really put me in a better headspace. And by the time I got back to Baltimore, I was really feeling a lot better about what happened. So I just wanted to thank you for that and let you know, I know the book's been out 20 years, but it's still having an impact on people. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, getting that book published was very difficult. I had to publish it myself along with uh, a friend of, uh, you, since you like game shows, Bob Eubanks, who used to do the Newlywed Game, a lot of other shows. Bob was one of my uh, publishers, and his partner, Larry Donizetti, who, uh, ironically enough, is a relative of the Donizetti, who wrote the operas. Uh, I, couldn't wow. get the, I couldn't get the book published because it wasn't a kiss-and-tell book. Uh, it wasn't one of these things where you were telling uh, intimate uh, experiences with people and and uh, was uh, were being not nasty to some of the people that you might have worked with. It was more in the line of George Burns's type of book, where you tell anecdotal things and and you try to bring the audience into uh, letting you know uh, some of the fun things that happen and also some of the challenges that you meet in your career going along the way. And as you said, that incidentally wasn't the Pepsi; it was the Coca-Cola <laughs> commercial. Gotcha, gotcha. So they're still they're still in uh, in in uh, combat with one another, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know, reading the book, the thing that stuck out to me first, like right off the bat, was your stories about coming up, kind of being mentored by Red Skelton, and um, just this attitude of how you treat people in the industry. And I guess I want to start off with this: Do you find? that most people have that Jamie Farr, Red Skeleton attitude of trying to minimize any kind of ego, or is ego as rampant as TMZ and Us Magazine would have us believe in the industry? I think it's the latter part of your conversation there, yeah. Mm. It, it, it was a whole different era. Remember something. We all came from, uh, first of all, there, were, there was uh, uh, before uh, movies, of course, there was, was silent movies, but then there was radio. And uh, all these people worked their way up. There was vaudeville and all these other things. So you you escalated yourself. You moved up into the areas of show business. So it wasn't like uh, you were suddenly discovered and then thrown into a movie or a TV series and made all this kind of money. You worked your way up. And uh, these people suffered along the way. Uh, it, I don't know if you remember or liked George Burns at all. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Wonderful uh, performer. Of course, uh, more of the young people would know them, know him from uh, Oh God and some of the other movies that he did. But George Burns was a, uh, a failure most of his life in vaudeville until he teamed up with Gracie Allen. And then once he teamed up with her, they moved on to uh, radio, and then they did some, some movies together. And, of course, then the TV series was a big success. And then he was rediscovered again in films. But George Burns uh, was a man who, uh, he was a kind man, he was a generous man, he was a lovable man, and he, uh, he loved show business, as did uh, Sammy Davis Jr. You talked about Cannonball Run. I worked with Sammy on that. Most of these people loved the business, and making money was part of that, but that wasn't the essence of the reason why they were in the business. 
Well, let me ask mm-hmm. you this, because when I look back and reading your book, really kind of put it in perspective and painted a picture of old Hollywood to new Hollywood. Now that you can just kind of make a YouTube video or go on American Idol, and I right. know back then a lot more people were steeped in the theater, and now half the people that are famous, the younger people, may not even know who Othello is. Do you Correct. think it's a good thing that people have so much more access to fame, or do you feel like people aren't paying their dues, therefore the performances that they're given aren't, don't really have the same substance as somebody who really had a struggle to make it? You know, that's not up for me to judge because we're all part of whatever the generation is. As you pointed out, they didn't have blogs in those days. You have blogs now. Uh, Obviously, I I had to contend with whatever was uh, occurring in my generation. Uh, Do I think it's it's a shame that people who get into a particular business, whether it's uh, the world of arts or fashion or cooking or uh, business or something, do not know a history uh, of their uh, their business? Yes, I do. I think that's uh, that's a shame. Uh, however, uh, the, the young people, uh, unless they they go and they study and they find out, I was listening to Dee who said in her 36 years how many books she's read. Uh, I'm 81 years old, so I don't I can't remember uh, when I was 36 for crying out loud. But at any rate, uh, I think that they just deal with whatever is with them, and you you can you can criticize them. But at the same time, uh, they're just doing what is available for them at this particular time. It's nice when you run into young people and they go, oh, yes, and they know who you're talking about in whatever field you're in. But you made a good point there talking about your career, and it was amazing to me when I'm going through – you're um, IMDb, and I'm looking at your career, and I was familiar with a lot of it, and a lot of it I was blown away from just the length of your career and all the things you've done, commercials, Pasadena Playhouse, right. um, The Greatest Story Ever Told, just every well, those series, are, those every are game show. Those are survival that you, you do be, do to stay alive in the business. We didn't make that kind of money. I, I think if you look back and you find out with uh, like a star like Humphrey Bogart, who was under contract to Warner Brothers for many years, uh, until he became an independent, uh, uh, he was making like seven hundred and fifty dollars a week, which was a lot of money, wow. of course, in the thirties at that time. But some of these people, uh, you look at these TV series, and uh, I was just checking on one of the Facebook uh, areas at, or, or one of the uh, whatever your modern day things are today, and I was absolutely astounded at some of the money that uh, some of these stars make. Neil Patrick Harris, I think it was like. Uh, mm-hmm. $18 million or something in a year. Uh, I don't think I made $18 million in the 60 years I've been in the business, you know. It's just amazing. Wow. Uh, well, I think know, when uh, Bonanza was on the air, and that was an hour show, uh, the, I think the stars were getting like uh, $50,000 an episode. I mean, that was unheard of at that time. Uh, Henry Winkler, he got, uh, I think, 25000 Dollars an episode when he was doing uh, Happy Days. None of us got that kind of money. That was outrageous at that particular time. And now mm-hmm. uh, you see some like I guess what was it Friends? The stars of Friends they were making a million dollars an episode, yep. and, and they went in yep. together. And at the time we were doing Mash, we were not allowed to do that because that was considered collusion. You weren't allowed. You had to make your own individual deals. And at that time there were only three networks. And, uh, you know, if you didn't like it, they'd say, take a hike, pal. Yeah, so you that just is had true. to get along with everybody and take whatever it is that uh, that they gave you. 
Is it a good thing, do you think, that they made that, you know, Seinfeld and Friends, they broke that million-dollar-an-episode ceiling and are getting paid a lot more on the back end? Is it good to go into the industry and have the opportunity to I, I think to it pay? is. Look, if, if they couldn't pay it, they wouldn't pay it to them. So obviously the money's there. No, nobody's going to uh, go into hock. Uh, it, it was a successful TV show. There was a gentleman at 20th Century Fox when we were all there. His name was Cy Salkowitz. He ran the TV department there. And uh, usually, you know, if you go in to ask for a raise, uh, they'd say, well, you know, Jamie, we have uh, in the safe a script that says uh, Maxwell Q. Klinger steps on a landmine. And so uh, you, you kind of backed off on that. But <laughs> I said, you know what it should be connected to? When you do a television show and you sign on to do it and whatever you, uh, the agreement is for your salary, if that show takes off and it's a hit, then your salary should be tied to the ratings, and you shouldn't mm-hmm. have to go in and, and beg somebody to uh, to get a raise, because right. you know that the advertising money, all this, all of that money, uh, increases. So why shouldn't you get a part of the uh, the capital part of it that uh, that their mm-hmm. increases are making? Absolutely, Absolutely. And, and you know, um, you make a good point about the script. Do you think that they actually had? scripts in the waiting no or? no they didn't have that but that was one way okay. of telling you to get out of the office you know <laughs> <laughs> gotcha, I think, yeah. gotcha. did i write in the book did you uh, when i got my raise how i got that uh oh, yeah. because yeah uh, they were they were well I, I had an agent and they they were very uh unhappy with him trying to get me a raise because i wasn't making that kind of money on the show and i knew what it was worth that i was doing a uh, the first mini series with William Holden, uh, The Blue Knight, and I was talking to William Holden about it. I said, you know, Bill, what am I going to do? I, I, the agent, they're going to uh, uh, blacklist him. In other words, he won't be able to sell any of his other clients if he persists in trying to get me a raise. And that, and he said, you know, that happened to me at Columbia with Harry Cohn. And then he says, look, what you got to do is you got to take it upon yourself. You have to go in. You have to be the one and put yourself on the line. As long as you don't hold a gun to their head. He said, then, then it's okay. In other words, right. you think you deserve something. Well, when he said a gun to your head, I thought, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get a prop gun from the, uh, the, the uh, props department. And the uh, executive office was right across from stage nine where we were shooting the series. And like a cartoon, I was in my uh, fatigues at that particular time. And I uh, tiptoed over from one tree to another tree to a bush looked into his window where he was his back was uh, uh, he was sitting at his desk and his back was to the window and I ran around got into the executive building kicked his door open and said listen you SOB this is the way the deal is going to go <laughs> with the gun but he ducked <laughs> under the desk and said are you crazy I said yeah write that down write that down <laughs> yeah that is a anyway, great story anyway I came in and, and I negotiated with him and I did indeed get my raise but, uh, you know, I did it in the, in, in the uh, comedic way. I mean, he knew that I wasn't about to shoot him. There's a lot of famous stories of actors going in and, and doing that. I, uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the young man. He was on uh, Sanford and Son, and he went in to the office of the producer, and he had a gun, and he said, uh, listen, now I want my raise. And he pointed the gun at him, and the producer opened his desk, and he pulled. I think the uh, actor had a 38, and the producer opened his desk, and he pulled out a 45, and he says, uh, "Now, what were you discussing?" <laughs> yeah, yep, <laughs> the gun's that's, bigger that's than your gun. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, that was in the book as well. That was a great story. Oh, my goodness. So looking at 81 years, and, I mean, your career spans well over 50 years, and you've done so much. Here's what I'm interested in, just kind of getting into your mindset. Do you look back at 81 years? Do you look look back and kind of do you still have a hunger to create and a hunger to challenge yourself? Or do you finally get to kind of look back and go, that was a life well lived, and now I can exhale? Or are you still hungry to get out there and create artistic? No, I'm still working. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, I'm going to be doing a, uh, a documentary uh, this next week on Doris Day, because Bill Christopher, who played Father Mulcahy on that, right. and I uh, did Doris Day's last film uh, with Six You Get Egg Roll, and uh, they're doing a documentary, and they asked what I tell stories about uh, when we work together. And I said, most certainly, Aww. she's a wonderful lady. I'd be happy to uh, share some stories with you. Uh, I have a, I've been up in Canada quite a bit doing a lot of plays. I did uh, a run of Tuesdays with Maury, Mitch Albom's book. Got uh, wonderful reviews for that. I did another show that was written uh, actually for Marion Ross from Happy Days called The Last Romance. And the uh, male and female leads in that are equal. And I uh, I went up to Canada and uh, did my version of it. Got excellent reviews with that. And in October, I'm going back up to Canada. There's a new play that uh, has been written by some friends of mine up there. It's a comedy. It's called Jack of Diamonds. And uh, we're hoping that some people will come and see it and uh, might want to invest in it for Broadway or for uh, Toronto. So I've wow. been busy with that. And then a friend of mine, Bert Prolutsky, who uh, uh, used to write for Dragnet and Diagnosis Murder and MASH and I think uh, Mary Tyler Moore, etc. He's written, written a wonderful uh, small movie called Angels on Tap. And uh, uh, they, they've been talking to me about it. And they're getting some, some names uh, to play the different angels uh, in it. So, yeah, I'm still busy and I'm still interested and I'm nice. enjoying it. Well, I mean, going cool. back to the theater, I found it was amazing when I was reading about your summers off in MASH and you were still going out and doing theater. Is that because when you come up in a theater such as you did, it's in your blood and you're never going to be able to escape it no matter how successful you become in TV and movies? I, I think that's partly right, but the other part of it is is that all actors are insecure. Uh, there's stories about Henry Fonda who would finish a movie and he'd go, well, I guess that's the last time I'll ever work. And when I was doing MASH and things were going well and I was doing all the kind of uh, game shows and various other things, I said to myself, you know, one day I'm sure that uh, the phone will stop ringing for television appearances or movies, so I want to establish myself in live theater. And I said, what's the best way to do it? To get out there while you're a name and know that, hey, you're you're just not playing off of your name to bring people in, that if the people do come in, they've enjoyed the show and that you are a bona fide actor. You're not just a uh, television actor. So uh, that's why I did that. And uh, just as I predicted, uh, you know, the telephone stopped ringing, but I had another area where I could go out and work, which I did, That's which took me to Broadway, as you read uh, in the uh, in the book where I uh, wound up being on Broadway uh, taking over for Nathan Lane uh, as Nathan Detroit and Guys and Dolls. And a lot of people would used to condemn me for doing game shows. They said, oh, you're too big for that. Don't do game shows. 
And I said, you know, let me tell you something. Most people, when they watch a TV series, they only know your character name. They don't know your real name. When you do a game show, your real name is out in front of you. So I said, I would like to make sure that my real name is equal in in, uh, dynamics to my character's name. And that's why I did the game shows. And also, when you do, when you worked in game shows, game shows was under another guild, another uh, union. Uh, when you did movies, which was on film, you would be working under the Screen Actors Guild, SAG. When you worked in uh, radio or you worked in, in uh, tape or, or live TV, that was after American Federation of Television and Radio uh, Artists. When you work on a stage, that's another union. That's Actors' Equity. Now, each wow. one of those, if you put in so many years of them, you get a pension. So wow. in my, my retirement days, uh, so to speak, uh, in, in my years today, I have pensions coming from AFTRA, I have pensions coming from SAG, and I have pen- pensions coming from Actors' Equity. And I think that's really smart, yes. and that kind of goes to the point of, do you think people today are as business conscious as they were back then, because now with all of the social media and all of the kind of like, we have no attention span in this country, do you think it's kind of like I go into the industry like a thief in the night, suck everything out of it I can, and then move on to the next platform? Or do you think people are, they, there's still that business consciousness in the industry? Well, I think, uh, you know, again, it's, it's who you are personally, uh, how you run your, your life. Uh, some people, and even in my time, uh, I had a lot of my friends, I won't mention their names, it was, some of them were, were pretty good-sized names, uh, got into the business, made a lot of money, and then they just wasted it. They threw it away, uh, and uh, they were in serious trouble. They lost their homes and everything else. Today, that money is so huge. And again, it all depends. You look at how many times you read about the pro- uh, professional athletes the kind of money that they make, and then yeah. you find out, my gosh, they're broke. They, they uh, how could you spend that? And they go, oh well, it's alcohol. Is well, I mean, how much alcohol can you drink if you're making, you know, uh, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty million dollars a year, if not more than that? It's uh, it, it's it's their it's their lifestyle. It's what you decide to do with with your life and who who you are. You got to look in the mirror and say, who am I? And uh, go along with that. I, I've always been a person that always wanted to give back because uh, I grew up very poor, and uh, I had great respect for my parents, and I, uh, and I wanted to make sure that I never shamed them in any way. And uh, as you probably read in the book, I uh, had my golf tournament for 27 years. I raised over $8.5 million for children's charities and abused women of Northwest Ohio. Uh, gave back a lot to the community, so that's just the way who I am. That's just who I happen to be. Some other people they they may not be uh, that aware of what uh, they want to do in their lives. Well, you know, talking about the book, and this was something I was wondering as I was reading it because that book was written about twenty years ago. Is there any chance you're going to come out with another book? Because I'm reading about. Uh, I, you know what? They're not interested in it. Believe me, it was a tough sale. <laughs> I mean, we sold. I think we sold forty, fifty thousand copies of the book. It was very hard to to get shelf space uh, because it wasn't uh, with Simon and Schuster or Random House or any of the you know big name uh, publishers, and uh, they, they just didn't want it. They, they you know they wanted National Enquirer kind of stories and. Uh, mm-hmm. Even if I do know any of them, I'm certainly not going to share those with, 
with somebody. You know, there's in, in our business is good people and bad people, just like any other business. And yeah, uh, what the heck true. do I care about writing about the bad people? I like to write about the good people. Well, let's shift gears here and talk about game shows because I have an absolute love for game shows. My, my you, know, you were mentioning on... the game shows. You were mentioning twenty one, and uh, the, yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, remember the sixty four thousand dollar question? That was the yes. quiz show scandals, and uh, I uh, I knew the gentleman who was involved in that. Bob Stiver is a wonderful man. He worked for he got Revlon to uh, to produce that and or to back it. And uh, I worked with Bob. Bob eventually came up with the People's Choice Awards. Uh, mm-hmm. it, was, it was very, very clever. Uh, he said, uh, he went to CBS, and he said, look, if I can get uh, Elizabeth Taylor on television, and, of course, Clint Eastwood, Clint at that time was a big star. Of course, Clint had started in TV with Rawhide and a couple other shows. Actually, Clint and I were in acting class together, uh, he was wow. cleaning swimming pools at the time, and I was cleaning chinchilla dropping pans on a chinchilla farm. <laughs> so wow! Where, when we were in uh, in class together, and he said, "If I could get Clint Eastwood, I get Burt Reynolds on TV. Would you buy the show?" They said, "Yeah," because you know you're not going to get them on TV. These are major movie stars. He says, uh, "You know, when you do a show uh, like uh, the Academy Awards, you, no one knows the winner." So uh, you you have to attend and find out who's going to win, but in the, with the People's Choice Award, they know in advance, so they have to show up to pick up the award. And they said, "Well, yeah, but how do you guarantee Elizabeth Taylor and uh, Clint Eastwood and all these people on the show?" He says, "Very right. simple." He says, "I can do a survey," but he says, "I can ask you questions in such a way that I can get you to answer Elizabeth Taylor for me." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I can that ask you questions in such a way that I can get you to say Burt Reynolds. And Clint Eastwood. Okay, they won the award, so now they're going to come and pick it up, and that's how the People's Choice got started. <laughs> that is incredible. That's why I think you should write another book because you have so many. I mean, a story about how you were almost never even born because you had relatives that were supposed to be on the Titanic. To you, well, that was my mother. Yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah. My, my father was born in a little village in Lebanon and came to the United States of America with his brother. Uh, and, uh, and my mother was born in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. And uh, when she was a little girl, my grandfather, who had come from Lebanon, and my grandmother also had come from Lebanon, they went back to Lebanon to visit. And my mother was there for a couple of years. And on the way back, coming back to America, they stopped in Marseille, France. Uh, and they were going to pick up a cousin to bring back to America. And the cousin was delayed. And my grandfather had already purchased tickets on the ship to take them back to America. And the uh, mother of the cousin said, oh, well, you can't leave. You, you must wait. You must take my, my son back to America. He must go to America. So my grandfather said, okay, we'll, we'll uh, get rid of these tickets and get some other tickets, and we'll wait for your son, and we'll take him back to America. Well, the tickets were on the Titanic. It had gone from wow. Southampton. England to Marseille, and then on from Marseille, uh, supposedly to New York City. And uh, my mother was, I think, seven years old at that time, and I wrote in the book, I want to thank a cousin I never met who saved my life before I was born, because certainly my mother would have been on that ship and uh, probably never never would have survived. And that's incredible. And those are the stories to me that are even more compelling than the mash part of the books, because they're human stories 
And, you know, a lot of times we don't think of people in the entertainment business as human, but you really did a good job of humanizing yourself and making a connection with the reader, I thought. And that's why I was like, you really need to do another book. I think people would be interested. It'd be tough to publish, honestly. Uh, I've, I've got so many friends that call me uh, that uh, have written books and they can't get agents or they can't get publishers and I try to help them a little bit. I, I said, my unfortunate part of my life right now is that the people I know are either dead or they're retired, you know, in all the areas that, that I had uh, some kind of strengths in. So gotcha. it would be a tough, uh, tough sell. Believe me, it would. I, I don't think, I don't think the readers out there are interested, to be truthful with you. I think they do like, we're, we're so uh, conditioned to enjoy sleaze, you know, that uh, yeah. I think that's what they're looking for. Well, okay. Well, before we move on to the mass section, I've got to ask you a couple follow-up questions on your book, just little tidbits that I thought were interesting. Um, and I won't go into the whole background of it, just things I was kind of wondering. You talk early on about a book in your book about having a secret admirer when you were at the Pasadena Playhouse, and you had asked her if she read the book to come forward because you never found out who it was. Did that person ever come forward? Did you ever find out who wrote you that love letter? No. <laughs> never happened. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately, she's probably, uh, or hopefully it was a she, she's probably deceased <laughs> at this time, yeah. <laughs> now, you know, you were talking about the game shows, the gong show. I got, uh, I was on the gong show for many years. As a matter of fact, yeah, I love uh, the gong show. Yeah, I know a lot of people did, did, did that. Chuck, uh, Chuck Barris wasn't the original uh, host, you know, on that show. It was uh, an, uh, a performer by the name of John Barber who did the um, I think that was that's incredible with John Davidson years ago, and John was the network host of the Gong Show. Gary Owens was the syndicated host of the Gong Show, and the very mm-hmm. first guest that we that did the network show was Joanne Worley and Jack Cassidy and myself, and uh, they had the, the orchestra. Uh, the guys were all in uh, uh, carny outfits. They had these uh, jackets that were striped, and they had straw hats on. It looked like a sideshow, you know, at a carnival. And uh, John Barber was uh, technically looking for the next uh, Frank Sinatra or Mario Lanza or some, you know, great artist in that. And uh, we were restricted. We didn't know what to say. We were we were dressed in our regular clothes and and that, and and uh, the show just wasn't working. So uh, we took our break. In those days, you did five uh, game shows in one day. You'd do three, wow. uh, the first part of it, and then you'd have your lunch break, and then you'd do the last two. So uh, Chuck came into my dressing room. He said, Jamie, what's wrong with this show? And I said, you know, uh, Chuck, I learned a long time ago that when you got garbage, wrap it up in a nice package. I said, first of all, why don't you take the guys out of the carnival outfits and put them in tuxedos, put the uh, hosts uh, the ladies that are the guests there in beautiful evening gowns, and the uh, men in uh, tuxedos, and the uh, hostess, uh, uh, C.V. Alberg was the uh, lady that was there in a beautiful evening gown, and we're all there to watch some guy cracking eggs on his head. You know, I said, go the opposite way. And I right, said, allow right. us to have fun with the uh, with the participants, because, I mean, uh, you know, we're not producers and people who hire people. We're fellow actors, uh, it could be us up there, uh, standing up there trying to play the mandolin or the banjo or something. He says, yeah, yeah, you're right. So anyway, he tried that. When John Barber uh, never understood that, so finally Chuck took over. And that's when the show took off and uh, all the silliness that uh, went on. And 
his favorites were uh, Artie Johnson, J.P. Morgan, and uh, and myself on that show. Yeah. And, you know, I'm only 44, so I totally missed the whole vaudeville thing in my lifetime. But I do think it's a shame that a show like Gong Show would never be able to get traction on television today. I think that's kind of sad. I miss that. They tried it. You know, they tried. They bought back those shows. But what happened was that the panel got more ridiculous than the contestants that they had on, which you can't do. I mean, the pan- I mean we did silly things, but the, the, the outrageous people were the people on the stage. That's what made it funny. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you, there wasn't any contrast. You had these uh, people that came on as participants, and then you had the panel that was uh, far more outrageous than the participants. So there was no contrast in it. It, did, it just didn't work. Well, speaking of outrageous, there is a story about you actually tying up Chuck Barris and you guys taking over the show. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was that, brilliant. That was spontaneous. Uh, John Dorsey was the director, uh, and uh, we were very, very uh, close to all the, uh, the the staff there. And uh, one day, we one, not one day, one of the shows, we got tired of Chuck uh, clapping his hands and doing those terrible jokes. So we decided, hey, let's get a rope and tie him up on the air. I mean, we're, we're oh taping this. So they said, so, oh, you can't do that. But they didn't. They allowed it to go on, and we actually took over the show. Uh, we tied up Chuck backstage, and uh, we got some duct tape and put it over his mouth. And uh, John Dorsey was smart enough to uh, cut back to him with his camera all the time as Chuck's trying to get out of his rope to take back his show. And then uh, J.P. Morgan would introduce someone, uh, uh, Artie would introduce someone. Uh, we'd all clap our hands and do all of the stuff that Chuck did. And uh, at the end of the show, to, for the payoff of that, uh, Chuck never gets out of his uh, his rope and duct uh, tape. And it turns out that Artie's the madman, and uh, J.P. and I are tied up in a chair uh, <laughs> with duct tape on it. And they let and it go. Brilliant. That aired. <laughs> You would never see that. And they had, that of course, uh, they had a couple of those shows that were censored, the, the famous Popsicle Twins ones, that yeah. uh, I happened to be one of the panelists on that show. Uh, I don't want to describe it, but uh, it was very erotic. And, uh, oh, my gosh, the uh, the lights went off on the uh, on the telephones at, at NBC on that yeah, one. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, well, and then that, there was that... the other one when... Uh, uh, a lot of times when I used to wrestle J.P. Morgan down on the stage, it looked as if I was trying to stop her from uh, from gonging, you know, somebody. But in many cases, I tried to stop her from exposing her bosoms on TV. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and one time, one time I wasn't there, and sure enough, <laughs> she did it. And again, oh my goodness, standards and practices went absolutely crazy. <laughs> And I miss, you know, and it was like I was saying, like I watched the match game reruns. I love every morning um, Game Show Network has two match Oh, yeah, match we watch it. Match every games day. back to back. And yeah, I just really love it. Gene Rayburn. I knew Gene very well. As a matter of fact, they asked me when Gene uh, was uh, uh, going to leave the show, they asked me if I wanted to take over uh, Wow. game. And I said, no. I said, you know what, uh, w- once you do that, then you become a game show host, and uh, mm-hmm. sometimes that uh, obliterates your career as a performer, as an actor. Uh, I didn't want to do that. Another dear friend mm-hmm. who was a terrific actor and singer, and that was Burt Convy. Burt had uh, tattletales uh, for many years. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Bobby Van. Bobby was a wonderful dancer at MGM. Uh, uh, Bobby... Uh, did a lot of the game shows. Uh, he, was a, he was a good friend of mine. 
Bob passed away. He had a uh, inoperable brain tumor, I think. He passed away very young age. What a nice man and what a talented man he was. And also Bert uh, Condy had, uh, I think, some kind of cancer that uh, wow. took his life very early. Very, very nice man. A lot of those game show hosts were terrific. Uh, John, uh, Alan Ludden, uh, uh, Tom, uh, uh, Tom Kennedy. There were a lot of them. I, I knew them all. They were okay. Monty Hall. Wow. And, yeah. Uh, Bob Eubanks. Uh, Jim Lang. All good friends. Very, very nice people. Well, we got to move on to the mass mass section, and I'm not even covering a tenth of the book that I want to cover. But let me ask you this one last gong show related question: For you being on the inside, confessions of a dangerous mind, the whole rumors of Chuck Barris being a CIA operative. Do you put any stock in it? How did that come about? What do you? No, think I, I don't. Uh, truthfully, I, I honestly don't. I know when uh, uh, George Clooney uh, directed the film. Uh, and they wanted to use clips. Uh, I, I worked with George, oh, my goodness, years. And I'm trying to remember the, it was a movie of the week that, that we did. And uh, he was a very nice young man. It was, uh, I'm trying to think of the different actors that uh, that were on it. Uh, Robert Culp and I were uh, two of the stars on it. And uh, George hadn't made his name for himself yet. But then right. later when he got to do uh, Confessions of a Dangerous uh, Mind, uh, he asked me, and and uh, they use clips from the Gong Show also in the movie. But no, I don't think that uh, that that uh, it might have been a uh, figment of his imagination. <laughs> Chuck was a very imaginative guy. <laughs> gotcha. All right, well, we got to move on to the mash section. I'm going to get my co-host Wayne in here because mash on a family and married with children are the only shows he, in rerun he watches. He's not someone who watches a lot of TV to start with. But let me ask what you this: What was it? Before. Shows all in the family and uh, married with children. Married Those with are children. Yeah, yeah, all in the family. Yeah, and the Norman Lear. I, my wife bought me his book for a Christmas present. I'm going to start reading oh, cool. it. Nor- Norman Lear was dear friends with uh, Larry Gelbart and Carl Reiner. And yeah. uh, I did not know Norman Lear, but of course Larry Gelbart, who created my character, and uh, did Tootsie and a Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, and Oh God, he wrote uh, yeah, yeah. a lot of movies, and of course Carl Reiner. Uh, when I got out of the army, and I was uh, having a difficult time getting my career started again, it was Carl that gave me the part of Snappy Service with Dick Van Dyke on the Dick Van Dyke Show. And wow. most recently, uh, Carl was at the Pioneer Broadcasters, uh, and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of his first name, Bergeron. Uh, what's what's the host's first name? Uh, you know, he did Hollywood Squares after Peter Marshall had done it for years. And uh, oh, at any rate, he yeah. interviewed Carl on stage, and Carl was an absolute delight. Uh, and he said, "How many people are here in the audience?" And he said, "350." He said, "Well, I just wrote another book." And he said, I have it here, but I can't give out 350 copies uh, to autograph. So he says, I'm going to tear a page out for everybody in autograph. Wow. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Carl did that. And then uh, uh, he uh, asked to see me uh, backstage uh, to talk to him for a while. He's in his 90s now, Carl is. Well, let me ask you this about MASH, and I'll get the Wayne in right after this question, because the running thing, and I just recently went back and watched as many of the episodes as I could on Netflix. But the running thing about MASH with me is how it changed from kind of like a more zany farce of a comedy to more of a dramatic, serious type of tone. 
Do you think that MASH would have lasted 11 years and gone in that direction had McLean Stevenson and Wayne Rogers not left in that third season? Could you have kept those characters and still gone in that more dramatic um, direction, do you think? You know, I, again, if you do any of the history on MASH, you'll know that when Gene Reynolds, uh, who was our producer, and Larry Galbart, who was our creator of the show, the writer of it, put it together, which I, I was not a part of in the pilot, uh, the, the first episode of the season, that when they went to see Alan Alda, Alan Alda said, look, if we're going to do this show, I don't want it to be Abbott and Costello at the front. Right. And they, they they agreed with that. But then then you have the network that gets involved, and they're saying, well, you know, can we show a show uh, that's a comedy uh, that has operating uh, rooms with blood uh, in it and showing all of these things? So they were really at odds with one another as to how to do the shakedown of the show. Uh, if you recall in the first season, you know how many, that was a half-hour show. And then you've got, what, like six minutes of commercial, I guess, for so you really right. got a four-minute show. So now you had, uh, let's see, they had uh, Trapper, they had Hawkeye, they had Hot Lips, they had Major Burns, they had Father Mulcahy. They had Spear Chucker, they had uh, Ho John, John, they had yep. Ugly John, they had, they had Lieutenant Dishy, they had, well, you know, I, the, the show is just overloaded with characters and try to come up with storylines. So uh, when, uh, when they finally came around, this was show number six that they were doing. I hadn't even seen the show, and, uh, you know, we have a saying in show business, one day you're drinking the wine and the next day you're crushing the grapes. At this particular time, I was crushing the grapes. Uh, I had done an sh- uh, episode of uh, Room 222 for Gene Reynolds. He had uh, produced it. Right. And I had also done an episode of F Troop uh, that uh, High Averback had produced, and then Gene was directing that. And I played a uh, stand-up comic Indian. Yes. In it, uh, where uh, I did, they gave me all the Henny Youngman, Milton Berle jokes, you know, instead of, uh, take my wife, please. Take my squaw, please, you know, those kind of jokes. And the punchline was the Hakawi chief says at the end of my audition, don't smoke signal us, we'll smoke signal you. You know, don't call us, right. we'll call you. And so Gene remembered that, and when Larry came up with this bizarre character, uh, Gene said, well, there's only one guy that can can play this and get away with it. And uh, they called me, and I think I had, you know, maybe six, seven lines. And they had all these characters in it, and I didn't know, you know, so I I did the one show, and then they brought me back for six more shows. But as they did that, getting back to your original question, they started saying, okay, these characters are too similar to these other characters. We really don't need them. Uh, You know, they didn't need these other uh, uh, things because they were basically the same. So they really came down to the individuals, the ones that really made the stories work, which was... Obviously, Trapper and Hawkeye, uh, Major Burns and, excuse me, Hot Lips, Father Mulcahy. Incidentally, Father Mulcahy was not played in the original show by Bill Christopher. He later came in and replaced the other actor that was doing it. And then I brought in a whole different area, you know, some guy trying to get out of the Army by doing all kinds of crazy things. And then, of course, Gary Berghoff, who came from the movie, was absolutely just absolutely wonderful as Radar. I don't think you could have had any other actor play that uh, that role. So that's when it began to get a, an individual style to it. And then, of course, uh, Alan and the writers decided they wanted to 
not just do this silliness that went on there, but have uh, a subplot. Uh, either the the main plot was either serious and the subplot was silly, or the main plot was silly and the subplot was serious. So right. that there was always something going on, and they always wanted to say something. They always wanted uh, be able to uh, make you feel that even though these people uh, were in these situations, in order to keep their sanity, they did insane things. And that really was the premise of uh, of the whole uh, episodes. And, but if they had kept McLean Stevens and Wayne Rogers, do you think those characters would have morphed into the more serious, stoic type well, of characters? I'm, I'm certain they would have, yeah. Uh, the, McLean, uh, MASH was not very successful. MASH... Uh, was actually failing in the ratings in the very first year. Out of about 65 shows, it was number 57 or something like that. Wow. It was on Sunday night opposite the wonderful world of Disney at 8 o'clock. And it was going to get canceled. And uh, at that time, William Paley, who was the uh, the uh, owner of CBS, his wife, Babe Paley, liked the show. And she said to Bill Bailey, uh, keep it on. I think you just got it on in the wrong time slot on the wrong night. And so uh, Mr. Bailey decided, okay, we will try it. Let's just try it. It is a good show. Uh, we're going to put it on Saturday night. Well, it went on Saturday night. I think uh, your friend Dwayne's favorite show, one of his favorite shows, All in the Family, kicked off the night. Uh, I'm trying to remember the the, the lineup was a, All in the Family, Mary Tyler Moore, uh, Mash, Bob Newhart, and uh, and the Carol Burnett show. It was the biggest night in the history of television. No I bet. People, yeah, people didn't go out to restaurants. They didn't go to movies. They didn't go anywhere. That was the big yeah. for television. And Dwayne, you're in here, by the way. I don't know if you knew oh, we queued you. I in. didn't know. Oh my God! No, no, stop, stop it! Stop it! Mr. Far, Mr. Far, I just want to say I have goosebumps right now. <laughs> I, I, this is absolutely amazing. I'm not a big star, okay, star chaser. I'm not a big star chaser. I'm not a big Hollywood type guy, but I absolutely love you. I, I love you and Nash. I've watched <laughs> episodes one through eleven at least twice a year. I just want to thank you for that. Well, thank that, you for your time, sir. Listen, I I, uh, I appreciate that very very much, and. Uh, yeah, you know the thing is, is that when you're an actor and you're doing these shows, uh, you, you go to the sound stage early in the morning. You, you got to be ready by seven o'clock in the morning, uh, and you work all day long. And you go home and you just you study your lines again. You do all that, and you don't realize the impact that you're making on the general public until you go out someplace and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm really affecting someone. I'm, I'm just doing my job. I'm trying to, you know, trying to get my these children. lines right, trying to get the scene correct and everything else. Mm-hmm. And it just amazes you that you, you go out somewhere. And I, 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 it really shocked me one time. We did one of the episodes, uh, you probably remember this, Nick, uh, is the one where General MacArthur's coming to the camp, and uh, they, everybody's getting ready for him, and and uh, they're trying to hide me, and I'm I, I keep showing up as <laughs> the character. Yeah. yeah. And the ending yeah. of that show was where uh, he doesn't doesn't even stop uh, to see them. Uh, General MacArthur's in his jeep, and mm-hmm. he drives by all the entire four oh seven seven compound, and then you see him. He notices something on the side of the road, and then he comes to attention and salutes, and then you cut to me, and it's me and my Statue of Liberty outfit. Well, yep, I got to tell you I something. 
They people. I, I happened to be the next day after the show was run. I was walking in Beverly Hills someplace, and taxi cab drivers, uh, bus drivers, uh, uh, people on the street were honking horns, pointing at me and laughing at it. They said people actually fell out of their chairs. Oh and my gosh! <laughs> that was one of the biggest laughs ever. Well, just well, you know, Jamie. Let, let me just jump in real quick, Dwayne. You know, Jamie, every single person I told, from my dad to my friends to coworkers that you were coming on the show, they all said that Klinger was their favorite character, even more so than I heard it about Hawkeye. What do you think yes. it is about that character, Klinger, that just resonates with the public so much? Is it that he's an I, everyman? You know what? I honestly can't tell you, and I, and I, and I really don't want to know. <laughs> I, whatever it was, we're, we're, we're all grateful. Uh, we're, we're all still in touch with one another. Uh, was I just got an email late. from Loretta Swit, and uh, she's in town here. She she moved back to New York. She's got herself a nice apartment there. And uh, we often get together. In our early years, we got together uh, to uh, talk about our children, and then now we get together. We talk about our grandchildren and our great grandchildren. Wow. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, Alan was in. Late. I think in February was back here in Los Angeles because he lives strictly in New York, not in Manhattan. And uh, we all went out to uh, a restaurant. Uh, Lorette, uh, Lorette wasn't with us, but uh, Mike Farrell, who's a who's a vegan, and uh, I'm trying to think of somebody else that uh, is a vegan. We go to this little Middle Eastern restaurant because you can get a lot of uh, vegan food there. You know, the tabbouleh and and the hummus and the baba ganoush and all that stuff. And we just had the best time. Gene Reynolds was there with his wife. I think Gene is writing a book. Uh, he's the producer of uh, of MASH. Burt Metcalf, who later became our producer, and his wife was there. Uh, Mike Farrell with his wife, Shelley Fabre. And uh, Bill Christopher and his wife, Barbara. Me and my wife, Joy. And wow. uh, i trying to think of who else. We've lost so many. You know, we lost Harry Morgan. We lost yeah. uh, Alan Harbus. We lost McLean Stevenson. Uh-huh. Uh, Larry Linville. We lost uh, Larry Gelbart, the writer. Uh so, but we all got together and had the best time. I mean, we get together and it's like we never left. Uh, uh, we we picked up from where we beautiful. left off. That is amazing, Dwayne. Go ahead. I, I've been monopolizing. I, I have the answer. It, it's Mrs. Farfar's legs, Klinger's legs. That's why he's the favorite. I mean, <laughs> when he wears those shorter dresses, that means how can you not love the man? <laughs> that may be true. <laughs> It's a shame I couldn't get a commercial for Nair or something. <laughs> I have a little uh, Syrian in me, and I have the hairy legs, too, and the hairy arms and chest, so I could but, totally relate. I was, uh, uh, also, I'm also bow-legged, and uh, my, my mentor, Red Skelton, says, you know, when you look uh, when you run, you look like an egg beater. <laughs> well, well, I just want my daughter's seven and my son's 12, and they are both absolute fans of Klinger also. I, I watch the episodes, and they sit there and watch with me, and it's just one of my favorite episodes is you, when he described you as a big red bird with the fuzzy pink slippers, and you're going to hang glide out of Korea. Okay, you know who wrote that one? That, that was, I believe, uh, I think Mike McLean Stevenson might have written that episode. But oh, wow. you know okay. that uh, I have those fuzzy pink slippers. That's one of the things. When, when the show went off the air, when we okay, went out okay. of production, I should say, uh, a lot of the things went to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington. Yes. D. And... Uh, uh, a lot of my outfits that I wore and the mud hen shirt that I wore uh, and the uh, the operating room and the still and all, those are all at the Smithsonian Institute. But I did manage to commandeer those uh, fuzzy pink slippers. I have them in a little curio uh, uh, 
uh, awesome taste that I have. Yeah. I was going to ask if you got any of those. Did you get to, did you get to keep any of the cheeses and the salamis that you got to? No. <laughs> did anybody actually eat them, or were they real? They probably would have been worth something today. Uh, really aged. Let me tell you. You know the the scene that uh, you see me flying over the compound. Yeah. Uh, that's that is not me. Let me tell you what happened. Uh, what we're supposed to do is uh, I, I leap off the, the that little uh, precipice there and holding on to the hang glider, and then uh, we were going to have to go. We, we shot our show at the uh, at 20th Century Fox, but the soundstage that we had to use where they were going to uh, show me uh, going across the compound was uh, at, at Paramount, and they had this very high wire thing, and I was supposed to hold on to something, and then they were supposed to send me uh, uh, by frame by frame across that so it looked like I was actually flying across the compound. Well, I couldn't do it. I couldn't hold on. I couldn't, I couldn't hold my weight on that. Wow. And so we were wondering, how the heck are we going to do this? Well, next door, uh, my friend Lee Merriweather, uh, who was Miss America one time and was uh, uh, the actress on Barnaby Jones and who's a right actress and a good friend of mine yet she was rehearsing for one of those uh shows the uh uh the the thing of the stars you know where you did those athletic things that's again my friend bob stivers was the producer of that uh mm-hmm. where you where the stars you know did uh, uh daredevil things and exciting things and and so she was uh, doing her uh trapeze next door and the gentleman that she was working with who was training her came over to, to say hello because she wanted to come over and say hi to me. Well, it turns out he says, I can do that. He says, I'm a trapeze artist. So what they did is they put him in that pink kimono and the, thing, and the fuzzy pink slippers, and that's the trapeze artist <laughs> that's going across the compound in that scene. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, Isn't that well, wild I, that it I should happen you... that way, though, that here's a guy that, that he does that for a living? <laughs> You know, and when I'm watching those episodes, because me and Dwayne have both been talking on the phone about every episode, we're kind of watching them on a Netflix back to back, and it, and I watch like Nurse Kelly and Rizzo and Zale and Igor. Aren't they? Aren't they all? That was our well, uh, not Rizzo, but the uh, Nurse Kelly and yeah. Igor and all. That was we called them our mini mash. They were wonderful. They were I actually started as extras, and then they kept giving them lines on the show. But weren't they all wonderful? I got to tell. Mm-hmm. And of course, yes. Bailey as Rizzo is terrific. He's uh, he's on the show The Closer. I think it's got a different name now. He's a terrific actor. Uh, GW is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's just amazing to me. You know, I had read that um, Nurse Kelly had done like a hundred episodes, starting in season two all the way up to eleven, and it's kind of amazing to me that they didn't work her in as a contract player. That some of these characters that are so prominent in the background. And so many episodes, I would like to know more about them. Well, I don't think, in other, in other words, I, I think they were pretty well, they, they they certainly didn't have to look for work. I mean, they may not have been under contract, but they knew that they were coming back, you know, every year. Right. Uh, Gwen Farrell, uh, uh, all of them. Uh, they, uh, we, we, Roy Goldman and Dennis Troy, we just lost Roy Goldman. He was a dear friend. He was one of the uh, prominent uh, mini-mash uh, extras that would get lines from time to time but they were all part of our family here's an interesting thing is that uh 20th century fox at that time we were the only fox show on the lot 
the other shows that were on the lot were from Aaron Spelling. They were uh, Charlie's Angels and Love Boat and all the other shows that uh, that Aaron had. So they were rentals. So we were really the only Fox show uh, that belonged to Fox. And, you know, they, at that time they were pretty cheap. They uh, They didn't even throw a Christmas party for us. We used wow. to have to throw the Christmas party ourselves. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so yep. the cast would get together, and we'd have this big Christmas party and buy presents for uh, the uh, the uh, mini mash, all the extras and everything else, and party. Sweet. Uh, it's it, it just remarkable. We we used to we used to pay for our coffee also. Uh, we you know about three o'clock in the afternoon, we'd have crafts and services. They'd have maybe some. Uh, peanut butter and, and, and Ritz crackers there and a cup of coffee. And Harry Morgan, you say, uh, uh, Jamie, let's get a cup of coffee. I said, you got it, pal. So we go over and get a cup of coffee. It probably cost us a quarter or something like that. And we got this memo from the guy who was uh, one of the budget people at Fox and said, you must cease and desist with the coffee, peanut butter, and Ritz crackers. It's uh, costing Amazing. money. So we couldn't believe that. They were that cheap. Uh, so all wow. Of the major characters went to the front office. Uh, that was our, my friend Cy Salkowitz, who was the head of the TV department there, and he couldn't believe it when he saw seven of his stars walk into the office. We each plunked down a hundred dollar bill. And he said, "What's this for?" We told him what had happened. He went insane. He could not believe that we were paying for coffee, peanut butter, and Ritz crackers. <laughs> the next morning, there were cases of peanut butter. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Floor to the ceiling, crunchy, smooth, or whatever it was. Boxes of Ritz crackers and and coffee in there. So that was the last time we ever paid for uh, anything. Now today, when you go out of set, it's like a five star restaurant. They have food yeah. all over the place. I couldn't. I went out of show. Yeah, I went out of show, and I was saying, my goodness, look at this. Is like, who, who needs to go out to lunch or anything else? You eat here all day long. They have the best food. But in those days, you didn't do it. We didn't even have our own bathroom. We used to have to go. Sound, sound Stage 9 was one of the oldest stages, and it didn't have a bathroom. So we used to have to go across the street, uh, across this, our little Fox Street there within the studio, to use the, uh, the just the general bathroom, to to use the bathroom. Uh, and, of course, if it was raining, you had to be careful because you couldn't get your costumes wet and that. And finally... Yeah. I forgot what year it was. They they finally added a bathroom on stage nine. We had a big uh, big celebration, a ribbon cutting and everything. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me of um, was it a mini fridge or an air conditioner that somebody had gave you that was leaving the set, and then that became an issue. Oh, that was uh, that was my refrigerator. Gotcha. Uh, yeah. When Wayne Rogers left, we we had these these just absolutely terrible dressing rooms across from the stage. Uh, up on the second floor, uh, they had a they had a little table and a chair and a little makeup thing, and then I, I had a little sofa there that looked like a sway back horse. And uh, uh, when Wayne left, uh, he 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 had a little refrigerator the studio had let him use. So I said, hey, you know what? I'll just take that little refrigerator. I'll put it in my dressing room because a lot of times I bring my own lunch. And when, when we had the lunch break, I'd go up there and have my lunch and some juice or milk or whatever it is. Anyway, they found out, the uh, front office found out that I had the refrigerator. And I was uh, leaving the stage to go up to my dressing room, and I saw these workmen carrying my refrigerator down the steps. And I said, where are you going with that? They said, oh, 
one of the executives at the front office wants this refrigerator. Unbelievable. Not assigned to you. And I said, hey, pal, let me tell you something. You better have that refrigerator back here, you know, right away, or you can tell the front office that when they have the next scene that I'm in, they can call me from my house. <laughs> so they go, oh, okay, you. the refrigerator went you. right back up <laughs> into my dressing room. <laughs> All right, so, no, Wayne, no, let me move on to this, because I know this is something we both want to talk about. And I read in your book that Alan Olda, that he got, um, or not Alan Olda, but Henry Blake, when he died, you guys got over a 1,000 letters about that. How, what was the impact of writing Henry Blake off of the show, McLean Stevenson? Well, everybody was unhappy about it, and the, uh, the, the, as you probably know, the story goes that we didn't know that they had that last page in the script. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We had uh, done the show, like uh, Loretta and I had done all of our scenes with Mac, and, uh, but let me do a little uh, backstory on this. The reason yeah, why Mac was leaving the show was that his contract had expired, and rather than signing on with him, Mac had been doing things over at NBC, and in those days, because it was just the three networks, uh, if a show got popular, one of the uh, a show on another network, the other two networks would go, "How do we sabotage that show?" Well, they thought McLean was so important to Mash that NBC would give Mac uh, little guest spots on the Tonight Show when Johnny Carson wasn't there, and he'd be like the uh, night guest, you know, over the host and everything else. And they started giving hints to McLean Stevenson that he was going to be the heir apparent to The Tonight Show, taking over for Johnny Carson. Well, that's what Mac really wanted to do. He didn't want to be just an actor. He wanted to be a, a, a host of a talk show. So that was why he was leaving the show. He was leaving it to, to go over to NBC, which they were not going to give him the, the show. As a matter of fact, they gave him a, another TV series that was not successful at all. And um, uh, it, it really hurt Mac. I mean, it hurt his career in that sense. So what happened was that uh, when they decided that Mac was going to leave, they, our writers, they said, look, this is a show about war. People die in war. That's what happens. So we're going to do this one page, but we're not going to tell the cast because we don't want them to play the ending. We don't want them yep. as doing scenes to know, oh, Mac's going to die, you know. So, there, there, I mean, the uh, 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 Colonel Blake was going to die. So what we did is we did our scenes, we went home, and we get this phone call. It says, you're to report tomorrow there's an added scene. And we didn't know what it was. So we came in. It was Loretta and me. We had already uh, done our scene. And they took us aside into a private room, and then they discussed this last page. Well, some of the actors liked it. Some of the actors didn't like it. I know... Gary was very upset about that, that uh, Gary Berghoff, who was playing Radar, he was right. very unhappy about that. Uh, but they said, look, this, this is war as hell. This will make such an impact on an audience because they said, I don't, they can't recall any series or any show where one of the major characters died in it, you know. And uh, so we didn't tell the rest of the cast, uh, the, 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 uh, the other people that were in the operating rooms, when uh, Radar comes in to make the announcement. We didn't even tell the camera crew. None of them knew what was going on. Everybody lined oh up gosh. the shot. And what you see on camera is the reaction of all the people in there who had just heard that for the first time. That is airplane. That is amazing. Very over to see a Japan helicopter, and there were no survivors. So what very you see effective. is a very honest reaction on screen. 
Did it make the cast nervous losing two main characters, Wayne Rogers and McLean Stevenson, after that third season? Were you like, oh boy, this might be the death of the show? Oh sure. Were you guys? Oh no, sure, yeah, of course. Yeah, you know, yeah, it was, hey, that's how lively. <laughs> I was, I was for the first time in my life paying my bills and paying my rent money and and uh, putting food on the table with uh, regularity. You bet. Of course, you're you're uh, you're skeptical of, of, but uh, I, as it turned out. Uh, the writers, the producers, uh, were so brilliant that they managed to uh, maintain the quality of the show and brought in interesting characters that replaced those characters, but without duplicating them. Well, I think yeah. one of the best scenes when um, Charles Emerson came came in is when uh, at Christmas time when he gave everybody just gave the oysters for the party for the orphans, and the mm-hmm. scene that you. Mr. Farr, you made amazing, and, and right there I knew what a person you were. I could see in your eyes how you weren't just acting, and you brought Charles um, the dinner at night, and then you said, sir, it's a family tradition, it has to be kept secret. And just the way you acted that scene out and to see your face, you could just tell what kind of person you were, and that wasn't acting. You really felt something when you were doing that scene. Well, I just absolutely you. love that scene there. Yeah, that's a, that's a tiny moment in a... Uh, in a in a long series that you would recall that I do appreciate that. Uh, there was one oh, show that we did that was uh, one of the most difficult shows we ever did was the one where uh, Harry Morgan, who was uh, Colonel Potter, uh, gets the the tontine, the uh, that last bottle oh, yes. of all the survivors. Yeah. And I got to tell you something, we had the toughest time going through that. <laughs> Harry was really talking mm-hmm. to us, his fellow members of the show. When he uh, when he talked about uh, his friends and how he survived and he he wants to share this this bottle with the, his his friends, I mean uh, it was so difficult getting through that uh, those scenes. Uh, oh, I should imagine. You know, I had the highest respect for Harry Morgan. He was such a wonderful actor and such a wonderful friend and person. Uh, he Harry could do anything. He could do uh, burlesque. He could do high comedy. He could do serious drama. He could do anything. And he was our father figure on the uh, on the set. And, and uh, you two meshed so well. You could tell. You could honestly look and think, okay, that could be a commanding officer, company clerk relationship with you two. How well mm-hmm. you got along and how you complimented each other. Well, I also think it was smart replacing Radar and filling that position with Klinger's character instead of bringing in another outsider that far along in the series. I've got to say on a personal note, I enjoyed you and um, Harry Morgan's chemistry more than I actually enjoyed Radar and Sherman Potter's chemistry. It was more believable you and Harry mixing it up than when we used to watch, you know, Gary Burkhoff mix it up. As far as the chemistry between the characters and the relationship, I love that relationship between you and Potter. Well, yes. thank you. Uh, uh, Harry was a uh, really remarkable uh, I- individual, uh, and one of the highest compliments that the cast received. Now, you, you have to remember something. Harry was in the business a lot longer than uh, than I certainly uh, w- was in it, and he worked with Spencer Tracy. He worked with Henry wow. Fonda. He worked with mm-hmm. Dana Andrews. He worked with uh, the biggest names in, in the business in films, Charles Lawton. He worked with everybody that you could think of, Ray Moland and, and in, in TV. Uh, and he said that uh, this was the finest, finest show he had ever worked on. And uh, it made us all really feel very proud of ourselves coming from uh, Harry Morgan. No, yeah, I bet. Yeah. We miss him. Oh. 
a lot of actors get upset being typecast or remembered as a certain character. Does it bother you, or do you appreciate that forever you will be known as Klinger? You know, people may forget the match game. They may forget Cannonball Run. But you know, 100 years from now, there's going to be reruns of MASH. There's going to be your final <laughs> farewell, goodbye, and amen. Does it bother you that people will know you as Klinger and refer to you as that for all eternity? No, not not really, because it was such a great show. It was such a successful show. I mean, if it was just a show uh, that didn't mean anything, and and uh, you know, that's oh, that's the guy that whatever it is that played on that. But that that show was more important than just the show. It's uh, it's an mm-hmm. iconic show. It's a show that will be on. It's. Uh, I remember when we were in the process of one of our final years, Larry Gelbart said, "Well, we're the next I Love Lucy." In other words, yeah. it's going to be yeah. on it's, uh, the same as I Love Lucy forever. And so, uh, no, that doesn't matter. The the tough part, of course, is when you leave the show and you're trying to segue into your career as to right. what you're going to do next, because then it gets difficult. How do you uh, get other parts? Uh, and that's why I, I made sure that the door was open in live theater. And I did a lot of those things, although I did do uh, quite a few movies of the week uh, and uh did uh, did I I survived? You know I did very well, and I'm still working uh, as it as, that's as an actor. Is it a lot to process to say, okay, the Mash is ending. You're getting ready. You're in the final season. You've got a few, you know, a couple more shows to cut. Is it a lot to process to say I'm about to leave? Probably the most iconic thing I'll ever do. Or are you just happy to be part of that history? Well, how do you balance? That? I I think that's both of it. You know, you're happy that they've been part of it. And uh, it, it, we 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 wanted to leave when we were on top. We didn't want to leave. Uh, we knew we we were running out of story. We would repeated stories. And uh, as wonderful as it was working with the cast and the the, the fine writers and directors that we had, that uh, we had taken it to the the finish line. There just yeah, wasn't the anything else we could long. do. We didn't want to keep repeating ourselves. Yeah, the definitely. The war was only four years long, so it was kind of hard too. <laughs> to do that. Now, I That's a good point. Questions. Well, two let me get this one thing in, because I've got to ask this total fluff question. Maxwell Q. Klinger, does anybody know what the Q stands for? Because I couldn't tell you. No, this is like <laughs> B.J. Honeycutt. You know, what does what B.J. stand for? No, nobody knew what Q stood for at all. Actually, uh, the, the character Klinger was named after Larry Gelbart's uh, dear friend in Chicago. Larry was originally from Chicago. And as a, he was a childhood friend of his, and that just happened. And then uh, making Klinger Lebanese came from a story. Uh, Larry Gelbart was a student, uh, a high school student at Fairfax High. That's the Jewish high school in Los Angeles. And Harry's, uh, uh, Larry's uh, father, Harry Gelbart, was a barber, and he was a barber to most of the comedians. He was a barber to uh, Milton Berle, the Ritz Brothers, George Burns, and uh, Danny Thomas. And Danny Thomas was from Toledo, where I'm from, and Danny Thomas is Lebanese. We came from the same neighborhood back in Toledo. And Harry would say to Danny Thomas, Danny, my kid, he's a wonderful writer. You should listen. He's got good jokes and that. So finally Danny said, all right, all right, let's see his jokes. So Harry, uh, Larry brings in the jokes, and Danny liked them. So Danny used his, his jokes on his radio show, then later, you know, on the TV. And uh, Larry never forgot that. So as sort of a payback to Danny, he made my character Lebanese and, and made him from Toledo, but he named the character Klinger after his childhood buddy back in Chicago. 
Whose cool. idea was it to incorporate all of the little what would be called Easter eggs today as far as you wearing a mud hen shirt and all of the little local like salutes that you did to Toledo? Was that your um were you what happened was table? one of our writers, Ken Levine, uh was a uh, big b- baseball fan. As a matter of fact, uh uh he uh he's he's sort of gotten out of the business as a writer in that and he's one of the comment commentators for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He loved baseball, and he grew up in an area where the Mud Hens played. And uh, when he became uh, a writer with his partner, David Isaacs, they, uh, he remembered that, and he said, look, let's incorporate the Mud Hens in this, because, first of all, it's a silly name. It's, it certainly is something that Klinger would, would appreciate. Nobody's ever – there isn't a team – and they did a story. There, there isn't any team named the Mud Hens except the Toledo Mud Hens. You know, you know, yeah. either Panthers or Tigers or uh, Turtles or something, but no Mud Hen. That's a, so that's how that uh, got incorporated. And then uh, we do some things where uh, we'd have a scene where they say, okay, let's just ad-lib something, and you'd ad-lib it, and it kind of sucked. And they go, well, let's use that again. That was uh, That's a good name. We'll, we'll try that. And so they, that's how they build it. They just kept uh, adding to it. All right, All right, let me move on I, real quick to the last please, episode, please, and then I'll let you get in here, Dwayne. Okay. Let me just do right. this last question. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry I know you're excited, Dwayne. I, you know, I read I a book, this and this was something that was also amazing to me, that you actually recorded the final episode. You guys filmed the final episode before the final season. What was it like already knowing how everything was going to unravel uh. and end before doing those 15 episodes? We knew the series was going to end, uh, and uh, that was uh, that was added on because Alan really wanted to leave the year before that, and uh, they decided, okay, we'll go this one extra year, and then they they were going to do, uh, I think it was going to be just an hour and a half, and they decided that hey, we can really stretch this uh, with the storyline, and went to the network and they gave us an extra half hour, so it became a two hour. Uh, ending of us, but we actually shot the two-hour ending before we shot the final episode of the season. Right, the final show of the series was shot before we did the final episode of the series, and the final episode of the series is the one where we uh, have that time capsule that we buried. Right, and uh, I came up with the idea. I said, "Hey guys, wouldn't this be great?" Why don't we bury a real time capsule on the Fox lot, and then years later, after the series is over, we'll tell them about it, and they'll go in, they'll go, oh, my gosh, this is a, what a great idea. So what we did is we uh, we tried to figure a place where it would not be destroyed. It was We figured, okay, right here by this commissary, because everybody uses the commissary, uh, we'll dig this big hole, and we'll get a waterproof uh, Red Cross box, and we'll put our little mementos in there, little stories and things that we did. And so we did that. We waited until uh, after midnight, after the place was all closed down. We went to this area, and Arlene Alda, Alan Alda's wife, who's a wonderful photographer, and we had a big ceremony with the lights and f- photographs of us burying this capsule, this time capsule, the, the cast. And then covering the dirt, we we have a shovel. As a matter of fact, each one of us was given a shovel. I still have it here in my study, uh, commemorating the uh, the event. And uh, we brought out champagne and we toasted. 
And we thought, wow, wouldn't this be a great story later on? Well, it turns out Fox did some renovating, and the very first place oh, they no. dug up, the bulldozer, <laughs> was where we <laughs> buried the time capsule. I, oh, the construction guy didn't know what the hell it was and threw it away. <laughs> Man. So that oh. ended that. <laughs> All right, Dwayne, you got time for one more question because we're almost out of time. Oh, I got two, I got two quick. So I mean, you got to do one because um, we're almost out of time. The, yeah, guys, I got another interview with the Toledo newspaper. You know, they're commemorating the 30th anniversary of my, uh, the golf tournament that I had. So we we better wrap this up. Yeah, do last question. Do you think Nash would have survived? Do you think Nash would survive in today's uh, politically correct environment? I honestly couldn't tell you that. I I really don't know. Uh, you know, that's a prediction that I, uh, that I couldn't uh, give you. Uh, they didn't. They didn't think Mash could have survived when we went on the air. As I told you, they said how, they, they they gave us a new uh, a new description. It was called a we were called a uh, dramedy, and a dramedy. Uh, <laughs> a, a dramedy. You know the combination of drama and comedy. So I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't know. Uh, I, I wish I knew that. I, I would be a very successful TV producer if I knew what uh, what yeah, sold. Right. So. Absolute very last thing. You have a new Christmas book, Habibi. About the animal's perspective on on Christmas, yeah, is that the same camel that you had in the episode Habibi, your camel? When you that's correct, him over yeah, we did. Christmas? We came up with that because <laughs> we had that imaginary camel, and so uh, I came up with that. My wife and I did, and we put the children's book out. And then, uh, gentleman awesome. who did the uh, is it Barney the dinosaur? He did the music. Yeah, did the music that he wrote a, a a great piece of music for that, and I did it with the uh, United States Air Force Band, and did the reading of it, just like Peter and the Wolf, to the music that uh, the the gentleman uh, had created for it. Oh, I, I have to get that. I have yeah. to. <laughs> I don't know how you can find it. I, uh, I I'll have to look for it myself. But it was a lot of fun. We'll all righty, Jamie. I know you've got to go. It has been an absolute pleasure and an honor. I want to thank you so well, much for calling Well, thank you. I, I do today. appreciate it. And uh, I, I will tell you now that I've done a lot of things in my life, and uh, you can take credit for my very first blog. <laughs> nice. Yeah. May, your camel, may your camels always have two full humps as they travel. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> my cardiologist uh, uh, said to me, he said, Jamie, can we use your uh, your like this and that to help. I said, you bet. He says, well, may we say, uh, may they, uh, may, if you do not follow uh, the doctor's rules, may the camel in front of you have gas. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. For uh, all right, my friend. Time. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Bye-bye. Wow, incredible interview. Right, guys? We've got a couple minutes to what? talk yes. about this. Oh, what a uh, he's just amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, Dwayne, what did you take away from this? Did you learn anything you didn't already know? Or what did you take away from this interaction with Jamie? I, I, I just took to hear him and talk to him on a personal level, and to me personally, that was the ultimate. I've, I've heard a lot of these in other interviews, but to have him actually convey it and tell it to us, and that meant a lot. I mean, I, I, like I, said, mm-hmm. I followed Mash, I followed Mr. Fari as far as finger goes and things. So I've I've followed that. So I've heard some of them, but to hear him tell it directly to me, it just took it to another level. Yes, it's amazing. <laughs> Dee, how are you processing all this? What do you think? I just think it's so wonderful to hear. I mean, I know I, I, I have to think part of it is because he's from a different era as far as acting and things like that. So much. But I think it's just so, it's so great and it's so encouraging 
to hear that someone who has had such a, a success, what I consider successful, um, career in Hollywood and especially in Broadway, I, I have no idea, which is fabulous because, I mean, I totally, I totally get it. I mean, because there's nothing like being on stage, really. Um, it, there just isn't. And um, I, I just think it's so encouraging to hear how kind he is and how considerate he is of everyone. I mean, he just has so much respect for anyone who is in the business and puts themselves out there. And, you know, he's like, hey, you know, I, I don't, I can't speak for, you know, how it is now because things are different. But, you know, this is how it was when I was, when I did it. And it was really hard. And, and you know, just to know that he's like, you know, yeah, I have those lazy stories and things like that, but I choose to be a better person and not share them because that's not who I want to be. I just I don't exactly. know. So, so, oh my God, he's so honorable and so just he's fabulous. All right, well, on the broader scope, to get away from the gushing for a moment over this. You know, here you have a guy from a different generation. We're asking him questions. Mm -hmm. He's saying, "Look, I don't want to make any assumptions or judgments. I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to attack or out this person. Why can we not do that in a political arena? Why can't we have this I much know. of a perspective back and forth when we're talking about the Confederate flags or guns or whatever the hot or, or Kylie um, Jenner or whatever the hot topic is that week?" Why can't we all right. this and do this in everyday life? Why does it take an icon like this coming in for us to have a back and forth and truly listen to each other? And I have to say, I think everybody was listening to each other more so than an average episode of this show. Do you guys agree? Mm -hmm. I, think, yeah, I think Jimmy Parks should run for president. I would vote for him. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Far like, right. I imagine Klinger like, ran for president. <laughs> But everybody would be nice to each other. It would be like, okay, guys. Not necessarily nice, but respectful. Scarlett O'Hara. Scarlett O'Hara. All guys. Let's end it there because I'm getting hungry, and um, we've got a lot to process on this end, and I've got a lot of stuff to do today. I hope everybody enjoyed the interview. You know, we always talk about the fans and what they enjoy. Let me tell you what we enjoy. We enjoy feedback. Did you like the interview? Did you hate the interview? Were there things that we should have talked about we never touched on? We've got an Ignorance Equation page. We've got a Twitter. You guys hit us up. Let us know what you thought about the episode so we can improve the format. Right, guys? Yes. Because like we know you're out there. Too. I like being fed, too. So as you're filling out the information, and Nick asks where you send me a steak or something, too, that'll, that'll work. <laughs> All righty, guys. Um, let's have some mass theme music wait, on the wait, way wait, out. Wait, before that, can I say one thing? I would just personally want to thank Mr. Farr. I want to thank Klinger. I want to thank him for his service to the United States military and all the years of enjoyment he's given me, and now he's giving my children. I just want to thank him for that. Aww. Right on. That's a good place to end it. Bye, guys. We'll see you next Sunday. Bye.